This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you from my house in Brooklyn. It's still a pandemic. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. Delighted that I get to not meet, but talk to Sam Hargrave, who has directed, can we call it the biggest original movie ever on Netflix? Is that is that official yet, Sam? I believe it is. That, that came out from Netflix, so I mean, you can say that. The movie is Extraction. It is a incredibly violent and very enjoyable uh, action movie starring Chris Hemsworth, who many of you know as Thor. It is also Sam Hargrave's first ever movie. So you made your first ever movie with a giant action star. It's on Netflix and it instantly becomes Netflix's biggest movie ever. How's that feel? I've got to be honest, Pete. It's it's a really surreal feeling to to one to, to successfully make a film is an achievement. I mean, because I've worked for many years in this business and been on a lot of movies, and you know, just finishing them, getting it done is is an achievement. But to then be in the director's chair and to direct something that where you get a response as positive as it has been from people around the world and then to be you know, the biggest Netflix feature film you know release ever is it's unbelievable i'm still pinching myself so the numbers are i think they're they're saying 90 million people have watched this worldwide in the first 4 weeks of release yeah that that's those are the numbers i read it's it's in it's insane it's really really something and for context uh spencer i think Confidential, I think it was called, the Mark Wahlberg movie, came out early this year, was was the number two, that was 85 million. And again, for context, um, lots of people I know are talking about Tiger King, I think that did 64 million. So this is a giant whopping hit by any standard. And as Sam was mentioning, he has a really interesting backstory. He was uh, a stuntman for a very long time. You have probably seen him in a movie because uh, he often doubled uh, Chris Evans, right? Do I have the right Chris? Yeah, this is right. There's a bunch of Chris's in the Marvel universe. Yeah, uh, well, I was I was confused. I was I was going to get it wrong. But you're 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 Captain America. Yes, sir. I I was for many years. It started with the first Avengers film that we did and shot in 2011. Came out in 2012, and I I was in the suit. I was the um yeah the the captain when he's falling down or or fighting or, or getting getting beat up. That was that was my job. You get beat up for a living, and now you get to get other people beat up. Right for now, a... I get now I get to tell other people to get beat up for a living. It was uh, it seems like a fair exchange. I want to talk about your path because it's a really interesting one, but I, I want to focus a little bit on the Netflix of it right now. Um, the people who listen to this podcast tend to be interested in sort of the business of tech and media and where they intersect, and the idea that Netflix 
after spending years trying to figure out how to make movies and how to get people to watch their movies without a lot of success seems to now something seems to have clicked and they seem to consistently be making movies that a lot of people at a minimum are watching um, is really interesting. Can you tell me the story of how this movie became a Netflix movie? Was it always going to be a Netflix movie? This film was has had a very interesting road, kind of a long road. Joe Russo wrote a, a script or a, a version of it maybe eight, or 10 years ago. It was called Ciudad, took place in South America. And it went kind of through the studios and, you know, they wrote a graphic novel based on uh, on this story, same story. But then recently, Joe, you know, got the rights back to the, or the option back for the script and then changed it to take place in Dhaka, Bangladesh and in throughout India, just because it was, um, he felt like the South American action movie uh, setting had been played out a lot in Sicario and Narcos, and it was kind of saturated in the marketplace. So we wanted to give audiences a new um, location that they hadn't really Western audiences. Should we explain least. who who Joe Russo is? I think half of our audience will know. And yeah, great. Have- yeah, Joe Russo is the you know half of the directing team of the, the Russo brothers. Joe and Anthony Russo uh, were the directors uh, at Marvel. They made a little movie you might have heard of called uh, Avengers Endgame where it's kind of the most successful movie of all time. They also did in Avengers Infinity War, Captain America Civil War, Captain America The Winter Soldier. And I actually, interestingly, did all of those movies with them. So you're, you're doing stunts with them for the movies yep. they're making. Yeah, yeah. I started out on the, the uh, Winter Soldier as a stunt double for Captain America, kind of reprising my role in the Marvel Universe as a double for Chris Evans. And it was on that film that we met and then the next time I would work with them, they would offer me a stunt coordinating job. So I designed the action for Captain America Civil War. And then it was Avengers Infinity War where the you know topic of directing came up. And that's where, you know, these different stories intersect for the movie, you know, that was Ciudad that became Extraction, that script uh came across my desk from Joe. He said, hey, you know, I think this might be a really good first movie for you. And I, I read the script and, you know, I agreed in that it had amazing action description. Joe's a really fun writer. Like, he, he really keeps it moving and, and very detailed in his action description. But it also had a heart at its mm-hmm. center that really, I think, is important in any movie, but especially action movies in this genre, to have a reason to cheer on our hero and to kind of sit through all of these crazy violence that we, we see. You have to have a reason, and, and I think when I read it, Extraction, it had that. So while Joe Russo is making incredibly complex, incredibly successful movies for Disney Marvel. He's writing another script. He's been working on it for a long time. Was the thought then, we're going to make this for Netflix from the get-go, or was it this should be a Disney movie? Or maybe it's not a Disney movie because it doesn't involve a franchise. How, How did it end up coming to my screen? Well, it definitely was never intended to be a Disney movie. The level of violence was always too too high. It was always but, going to be a, a, a really it was. gruesome, and I don't mean gruesome pejoratively, like we're going to show you someone getting their eyes poked out with a rake. Yes, it was, it was always a very real, very gritty, very hard R script. Um, you know, it's kind of in the vein of a lot of those like action movies from the 70s and 80s where they weren't, you know, shying away from it. They were leaning into that genre. So mm-hmm. it was always meant to be that. But, you know, it, it bounced around. We had, we, you know, it, once he asked me to direct and I said yes. And then we got Chris Hemsworth attached. So when you have that package deal, it's a very, you know, attractive to, to different studios. And it went around and around, but it, it ended up at Netflix because, 
Netflix provides a great home for many filmmakers, but for an action movie like this, in the theatrical kind of or the studio system, you know, they generally they're going for either the big budget blockbuster superhero movies or kind of the lower budget you know, movies, something mid range action doesn't really have a home, or if it does, they're few and far between at the studio level. What's so, a mid-range action movie budget these days? Uh, Budget-wise, I mean, I would consider it between 50 and 100 million. So a lot of money, but not a $300 million. Right, or, a lot of money, just not, you know, a yeah. half a billion dollars to make a movie like, you know, like the two Avengers movies combined. Like, it, you know, just a huge investments for them. So mid-range is, I mm-hmm. guess, say, the term I would use for something between, you know, 50 to, to 100 million, and that... It's hard for, and I get it, that's a tough, especially an original IP, you know, original um, intellectual property that isn't proven, you know, it's, it's, so it's, you're taking a risk. And so it's now with Netflix and other streaming platforms, these kind of movies find a home. And so as soon as Netflix kind of saw this movie and who was attached, they made an offer and, you know, it was, it seemed like the right fit for this movie and for all of us to go over there and, and get on the streaming platform. So when this becomes a Netflix movie and it's a done deal and, and the contracts are done, does that change what you were making? Do you tweak it in some way to either because you know it's going to end up on a lot of small screens, because you know it's going to be distributed around the world? Uh, is there anything you do or don't do once it's a Netflix movie instead of a Paramount release? No, in a way, it actually provides you more freedom because Netflix, it's global. Like, there's mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of subscribers all over the world, and viewers, you know, they're not restricted by language or location. Like, they're going to get it to all of their viewers, however that needs to happen. And so, in a way, it's a, an advantage for more people to see your movie. And I think we saw that with this, with the, you know, the numbers of this release. But we, we being the filmmakers like Joe Russo and uh, you know Hemsworth and I, and along with our DP Tom Siegel and everyone involved, we we saw it as a cinematic story, and so we wanted we chose the two four zero format because we all are lovers of cinema. Like we didn't, you know, sometimes and we went through this discussion. The, the, the aspect ratio, right? Like yeah, how the aspect ratio that we would, in the widescreen format. You know, there's different aspect ratios that change the way you view the film. That's a very cinematic. You know, aspect ratio, and we were all fans of cinema. So rather than changing it, which sometimes filmmakers do to to be more easily viewed on the phone or to fit the you know the computer screen that might be sixteen by nine aspect ratio or whatever, we decided to stick to the format that we all loved consuming our you know films in. And we shot it basically for the big screen. Like we wanted to have, you know, nice epic vistas and, you know, get in there and make the action feel big. We didn't change our filmmaking style based on the the format that was going to be streaming. And and was the idea that it's set in a foreign country that people can't find on a map, or I'm assuming most people can't find on a map, is that a matter of that's the best place to tell the story, that's a cheaper place to make a movie that looks like that, that's we want, We this is international, we figure there's a, lot, a significant audience that will want to see this part of the world represented. How does that come about? Yeah, the, I mean, t- you, you touched on two of the reasons I believe we did. Is One, for the story, it was a unique setting for a story like this to take place because, as you said, most people can't really find it on a map that would mean they're not, you know, inundated or saturated with that part of the world. Be like, oh, another movie, you know, in in DACA. Like that doesn't, you don't hear that, you know, phrase. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a unique already. And you take a, you know, a movie that in this genre that like, you know, it's like kind of a 
a redemption story that, you know, it's been told before. We're, we're, and we're, we're putting our unique spin on it by taking this story and setting it in a unique place. Grizzled guy, done a lot of bad things, has a, maybe one last mission, and it looks like a suicide mission. Right. You know, that's that in that way, it, that concept, that conceit has been seen before. But you mm-hmm. take that story and put it in a, in a different location. And now it has, you know, a fresh twist. And so that was one reason. The other was that you said it was globally or like internationally. There, there are a lot of people in that part of the world who, you know, with a story like this taking place there could, you know, identify with and, and kind of get behind and be supportive of and want to see their, you know, that part of the world represented in a, in a Western film. So, I mean, I, I will say that after seeing that Spencer Confidential had done really well and that, like, again, like at least in my version of social media and my version of Buzz, almost no discussion of it. Then when I saw you were next up with Extraction and that it starred another big action hero that people would know, and then was set in Dhaka or just set somewhere else. I thought, oh, I think this movie is going to do really well. I think the Netflix guys have kind of figured out this formula at this point. You, you take a recognizable American action hero, you put them somewhere, and people are going to want to watch it. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Netflix is hitting their stride, I think, in as far as, you know, not that they haven't, but they're, they're really, you know, I think playing with the big big boys, as you you know, could say, as far as the studio movies, like they're making big action movies with big stars, big directors, like they're you know a big time studio. And I think the response that we got from this film is indicative of the you know the influence they have around the world and how many people are you know kind of tapped into this Netflix uh, machine, which is delivering you know content to people globally. And what's crazy is you know all everyone can watch it. Immediately, like as soon as yep. you put it up there, everyone gets to consume it. So, what does that feel like? They they release it, I guess, on a Friday, right? Right. What does it look like to you? I think we're in. Yeah, we're obviously in quarantine. Then, traditionally, right, you'd have projections for the the first weekend gross, and then you'd be looking at the numbers all weekend and seeing how you did. What does it look like when you're the filmmaker and you want to get a sense of how well your Netflix movie is performing that weekend? Well, Netflix does a very good job of communicating with the filmmakers. They're just, I mean, very hands-on and, and involved with the process and they want you to, you know, be as well and just know what's happening. So they do, it's like, you know, three days, seven days, uh, 10 days, and then I think it's 28 days where they... They're, they're giving you numbers. Yeah, they, they sit down with the filmmakers and they say, hey, the, these are what the numbers are looking like. These are kind of the projected numbers and this is, is just keeping us informed as, you know, kind of as you would with a studio system. They Once they get the numbers, they would share them with you. But Netflix is very, you know, they're very involved and very open and, and with the filmmakers at least. And it's it was a really, it's been a really cool process. I mean, we're still, we have yet to hit the 28-day mark. So we'll have another meeting and see what those numbers are. And, you know, they just they're just keeping you informed as a filmmaker. And does that, I mean, it's, I guess it's sort of hard to imagine what 90 million people or whatever the three day number is or the seven day number is sort of in an abstract way. Does it, can you feel it sort of on the internet or maybe your phone's blowing up? I mean, is there a way that that sort of popularity registers with you? Well, I think, you know, when you've made it, when somebody, you know, makes a, a, a copycat trailer or they start making memes of the movie. And I saw mm-hmm. one the other day where these two two kids, uh, it looked like somewhere in, in Africa, they had recreated the trailer for Extraction in just, you know, in their backyard, and it was amazing. But you do, I mean, for me, and it, what's interesting with that number is I think there was 90 million households. 
Right. And so if you think like how many people in a household, that number could double or triple or quadruple. Um, so that's, that's a lot of people all across the globe seeing this film, which is exciting. And you, I do, like, you know, when, when it's kind of the, the, the talk of the town, so to speak, but globally, you, yes, you're getting a lot of emails of people that you've, or, you know, phone calls from people you haven't talked to in a long time, um, just because all of a sudden, you know, everyone's watching Netflix. And if you've lost touch with people, it pops up in the Netflix clue. It's like, oh, like I've, I used to know that guy. Or you see it on Instagram, everyone's posting about it, but not just your friends and family. It's people, random people in very far reaching corners of the world are, you know, touched by this and have experienced this film, it's really surreal. And like I said before, it's hard to, hard to fathom. So like you said, this is, like we've said, this is your first movie. You're 37, is that right? Yes, sir, 37. Uh, but you've been on a lot of sets. You've, you've been around a lot of movies, a lot of big budget movies. How do you think you, first-time director, making a serious movie, a significant movie for Netflix, how does that experience change if you are working at a conventional studio? Or at this point, is it kind of the same thing? Well, I mean, I've worked on a lot of big films at the studio level, but not in this capacity. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think, um, I mean, one, my, my experience at Netflix was incredible. Like, I really, I would I would work with them again in a heartbeat. I had a great time. I think we made a good movie, and they were very supportive all throughout the process. You know, I, I think the, the, the difference, or it would just, I think now, moving forward, it's really, in this time that we're all going through, you mentioned quarantine, everyone's kind of looking to see what, how are we as a film industry going to adapt and react? So I mean, the future in that way is, is very interesting to kind of uh, meditate on. And so I don't, I don't know what the future holds are working with, you know, studios versus streaming, like how that's all going to break down. But at this moment, you know, I've been, I have had meetings with many different people at many different studios and streaming platforms just to, just to meet people, to be out there, and to just to see what is the next best fit. Because every every time you have to sit with your team and and, and kind of look within and see what what's best for the project, the the best avenue for the story, and the best uh, challenge for you as a director. What's the best next next best move? And you know, when the time comes, when when things open back up, we'll be we'll be ready to to make that decision. Yeah, I mean, as you know, right, there's a whole slew of big budget movies that were supposed to come out this spring, this summer, maybe this fall, and, and those re- many of their release dates have been pushed back because mm-hmm. we don't know if we're going into movie theaters. And this is the kind of movie that would have been in a theater, right, in an, in an earlier version. But as you said, like, it works perfectly fine on your phone. I think I watched half of it on my phone. That doesn't, <laughs> offend, that doesn't offend you, right? No, I mean, it, can, it can't. Like, that's, I mean, we, we were very aware of people's, everyone's going to have a different viewing experience of this. And what, that's actually kind of an amazing thing, is you, you can touch, um, reach out to, and, and, and provide an experience where, you know, maybe... You don't have the time because you're whatever your life circumstance, and but you can have your phone with you at all times, and maybe you're you know just <laughs> sitting alone and about to go to bed, and like, I don't want to get up and go to the TV, but I want to see this movie. I just pop it up on my phone and enjoy it. So it's you really have described kind of awesome. my my cinematic experience for quite some time now. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. I have other questions for you. I want to take a quick break so we can hear from sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. 
Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Still here with Sam Hargrave. You are aware you're you're out in California. How's your how's your quarantine? Yes, sir. Out here in California, a uh, quarantine, you know, is it's really I think it's kind of similar for a lot of people. Everyone obviously has different circumstances that they find themselves in, but we're all in this together and I'm just trying to control what I can, which is my attitude and perspective. So I, I try to stay positive and just do things, you know, that that'll hopefully uh, improve my craft and improve me as a, as a person. I'm trying to stay healthy and working out and meditating and you know playing music, but also trying to write and, you know, read a lot of scripts and just be prepared for, you know, the next step of my career should all of this stuff, you know, pass and we get back into the movie making business. I'm assuming you want to make another movie. I'm assuming people want you to make another movie. Have you done real thinking about how your movies are going to get made uh, in this new world we're in where maybe there's not going to be a vaccine for an extended period of time? There won't be a sort of normal for a long time? Have you yeah. thought through like how you're going to work with hundreds of people and live action and all of that, or maybe it just can't happen? I have. I mean, it's it's definitely something that goes through my mind. Is that you know what what is going to be normal? How are we going to you know create these these worlds where if for example, if you have to, everyone has to stay six feet apart. I don't know. Is it possible? I don't know. Do, does every action scene become you know a, a shootout with guns or bows and arrows? Like, can you, will we ever be able to return to, you know, intimate scenes, whether it be lovemaking or, or you know, fighting with someone and it feels very intimate? Those are all questions that kind going to churn through my mind. I don't have answers. And these are, these are small cities, right? When, when you put on a production like this, how many folks are, are working on a set of a movie your size at any given time? At any given time, Ballpark. we had... Yeah, for on our movie there were days where we fed you know six hundred crew members, but the core crew I think we had between one hundred and fifty and three hundred individuals on our on our movie, and at times you know that would balloon if we had a large set piece with a lot of security or background. Mm-hmm. But but I mean in general, and then you think through like all the people have to support that group and the catering and transportation. It's it's a yeah. lot. It's it's vast amounts of people, uh, you know, involved in this and working together very closely for long periods of time. So, the logistics of that, you know, I I don't pretend to understand or have a, an answer for, but I I am very interested to see what what the new normal or what the next steps look like and how that's going to impact the process of making films. I have other logistical movie making questions for you if you'll sure. indulge me. So. Again, your background is stunts, and we'll talk more about that. Um, this is a movie that I'm assuming is, uh, Extraction is a movie that appears to have been all live action. I mean, obviously you're using digital stuff here and there, but I'm assuming that most of the cases when I see Chris Hemsworth kicking someone or getting kicked, that is him kicking someone or getting kicked or his double. It's not CGI'd in the way that, you know, lots of other movies are. One, why make a movie that way instead of relying more and more on digital? For me, I've always been drawn to movies that were made that way, where you see a real person engaged in real action, and there, you know, there's real danger, there's real consequences. I grew up loving and watching Jackie Chan movies, and I don't think there's anyone who is more real and putting themselves, you know, their safety on the line, risking their life and limb for the entertainment of audiences around the world. Do you think the audience? picks up on that, that they get the difference between Chris Hemsworth in your movie and Chris Hemsworth in an Avengers movie, that there's more risk for him? 
I do think that's palpable. I think you can, I mean, as great as CGI is these days, as, as advanced as it is, I still think there is a, a, a tangible difference when you see uh, a, a human doing something for real. I, I think there's a difference and people can, I, I, mean, I think a lot of it has to do um, or can be seen in the response to movies like the John Wick, you know, to Extraction, like what you know? What, why are people responding so much to these movies? I John think Wick is also made by a former stunt double, exactly. right? Exactly, For, yeah, yeah. yeah, former stuntman, stunt coordinator, fight coordinator, second director, and and really close friend of mine, Chaz Tahelski. Like, I think that was one of the you know I'll say first, but in in recent history to, sh- to show to really demonstrate the the power of physical action with with the actors really performing it and you know not relying on cg for a lot of these you know spectacular stunts and we try you know followed suit we we because we both chad and i and and dave and other filmmakers kind of come from that school of inspiration from the hong kong filmmakers among many others like it wasn't just we're trying to copy these guys in hong kong that was one of the inspirations but i mean what they did and how they did it was super influential in our filmmaking growth and so to pay homage to that and to kind of return to that it's kind of, I think filmmaking filmmaking is kind of uh, it goes comes and goes in cycles and so mm-hmm. now you know we it's kind of a return in a way to that real gritty filmmaking where you see people doing the stunts and and the, and the beauty of that now with advances in technology and safety is you can make those stunts that are still real you can improve the safety measurements, like because it's easier to paint on a wire to you know so when someone's jumping across a uh, you know a balcony or jumping over you know something where in case they fall you can save them or you can put a, a pad down and paint it out in post or you know help in in certain ways to increase the longevity of the performer or to make so them safer. Still doing the stunt, it's just easier for them to do the stunt or less dangerous. For I them would to say, do. yeah, I wouldn't say it necessarily makes it easier. You still right. got to, you know, still got to make the jump, still got to fall, but it does, you know, in a way um, eliminate some of the variables that could lead to injury. So that's, some, that's something I love about the advancement of technology is it helps those realistic stunts become safer so you can do more of them. And if we just break it down into dollars and are just really crude about it, dollars and time, and um, is it easier to do the live action stuff because it's X number of people in this amount of space and you know what's happening and you don't have to worry about animation later? Or is it, I'm trying to think, I, it's, it, you probably can't do an apples to apples, right? A, a fight in Extraction versus a fight in an Avengers movie. But, but which one takes more time to accomplish? It really depends on the scenario and mm-hmm. um, you know who, who's involved in the. There's so many variables in that question. I think what we're, we're getting at, and what I, what I can attest to, is having designed for both. Is as a director, or as a, as a you know someone making the film, I like to be able to see you know in camera what we're going for. Like if if we've got you know a guy fighting six. You know, six people say we're in the you know extraction, and we all of those guys are there, and we're interacting with them in real time. And on the Avengers movies, sometimes it's just Chris swinging his hammer in front of a blue screen, mm-hmm. and people who we will add later who aren't even there. So it's just a very different approach. Now, easier, you know, that just depends. If you're in the stunt department, it is easier because it's you know it's just one guy swinging a hammer. Now, for the, less likely to get hurt. Exactly. And for the visual effects department, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, a lot more work. So, and then dollars and cents, it's, it depends again on, on, you know, how much and how big, but it's starting to become, you know, 
a little bit more even and almost leaning in towards the, you know, in this example of guys, you know, fighting and digital guys, almost easier because so many movies have been made now with those digital assets. So mm-hmm. when you go to those companies, they already have those and they're not, you know, they just reuse what they have. So it's actually, in a way, becoming cheaper to do certain, certain CGI um, sequences and then more expensive to do it in camera. So, you know, I, I hope that that doesn't uh, start to outweigh the, you know, or, or sway the decision. So it, you know, more and more and more becomes CGI uh, as the technology becomes better and more realistic and less expensive. Because I, I think people need that human element in movies at least to balance the other. Because there's a place for I love I love the Avengers films I love the fantasy genre like the you can do things now and go places and tell stories you never could many years ago but I think there needs to be a balance on the other side of that to to kind of um, you know satiate the need of reality or of um, a bit of a um, it's a little more of a realistic dream or a more relatable to a guy who you know isn't flying around with with a hammer and you know can yeah. is untouchable. And also just novel, right? You just haven't seen it in a while. And right. you, you and I grew up on some of these movies, but a lot of people have never seen movies like this. John Wick mm-hmm. is kind of the first movie they saw like that. Uh, one last movie-making question. You have uh, at least, I think, two... I don't know. I don't know what you call them. Do you call it a one-er? It's, it's, the idea is it's supposed to be one long tracking shot, sort of unbroken yeah, we, shot. In the business, the lingo, yeah, one-er is what we've termed it. I think you can call it a lot of different things, but... For the sake of this, we'll call it a Warner. And and the most famous one of these, I think, is still Martin Scorsese in uh, Goodfellas, where they're walking into the club, and, and you see them occasionally. And it seems like we're seeing more of them recently. Mm-hmm. The the one I remember everyone getting excited about was in uh, True Detective uh, that yep. season with Matthew McConaughey, and obviously 1917 is supposed to be one long version of that. Are you making that because you think the audience gets what you're doing and responds to it, or is it? I want to try it because it's a really hard thing to do and I want to see if I can pull it off because Martin Scorsese did it. <laughs> uh, and and very well, we might add. I mean, there, there's been, you know, we weren't, weren't the first to, to do a one and, you know, I, w- I wouldn't even argue that we're the best. That we just, and I've done them before. Like I did, you know, in Atomic Blonde, I designed and shot that one in the stairwell sequence with Charlize Theron. Oh, that's another brutal fight scene. Yeah, so... For me, and then and I learned that through from Dave and the other my experience with Warner is that the the reasoning has to be rooted in storytelling, and there ha- it can't just be, or it's better if it isn't just based on hey let's try this thing because it's cool, um, and so the the thought process in Extraction was to do this extended take in order to provide a kind of a different experience for. The audience. So, you know, not many people have probably, I mean, some people maybe listening have, but to extracted someone, you know, violently out of a foreign country, you know, <laughs> so, to, so to put the audience in I'm that. Guessing pers- it's a small slice of our audience. <laughs> right. Um, but so for those who haven't, to have that experience where the camera kind of becomes a voyeuristic point of view of the, you know, of the audience member who gets to go along on this journey and see this happen in real time. Is you know something that I thought would be important to this story, yeah. just to, so you feel the pain, you feel the surprise and the emotion and the excitement of this uh, sequence, and then hopefully that that feeling invests you even more into the emotional development of the characters, and then it carries you know so that by the end of the movie you're more invested. That was the idea, was to use that as a storytelling technique. And then hopefully along the way it's exciting and people like, technically yeah. can go, oh, that was very difficult and they did a good job. But 
ultimately is based on storytelling. Right, and if you're in the audience, you shouldn't really be thinking about your technical difficulty and making that right because no, because if, if you yeah if you've done if you do that, then you just haven't you know you haven't succeeded in the um you know in the the task which is getting people immersed in the story and following you on a journey with these characters. The other thing I think about, which is not a novel idea, is that I play video games, my kids play video games, and a lot of that stuff reminds me of sort of that over the shoulder perspective you have when you're playing like a first person shooter or like mm-hmm. stuff over the shoulder that, and that's sometimes it almost fits more with sort of an audience expects from action. Uh, and maybe I'm making too much of a leap, but it does seem like there's a connection to video games. That, it doesn't seem forced, it just seems organic. Like, this is what you're doing on your own, and now this is in a movie. Yeah, which is kind of ironic in that I, I think the last video game I ever played was uh, Goldeneye. I remember um, that one. And before that, it was Duck Hunt. So I'm, I'm not a real big video game person. I'm very aware of that culture and the you know, influence and the significance of that um, way of, you know, uh, digesting entertainment. Like, it's huge. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the gaming business is actually bigger than the filmmaking business as far as dollars and cents go. Indeed. Um, did you, this is so I kept talking about your background. I do want to ask you about it before we go. You've been in movies for a long time. You're not an old person. Was the plan always, I want to move my way up the stunt ranks and eventually make a giant action movie starring an action hero or or was this sort of happenstance uh no that was always the goal now a big action movie I, i'm just very fortunate that that's how it turned out i always wanted to make you know movies direct movies that was something that i you know came to los angeles with the intention of doing now i like i said i was inspired by jackie chan in all aspects his career his career path was extremely inspirational to me because he he went from a stuntman, a martial artist, a stuntman, actor, producer, writer, director, editor. He he did all of it. And so for me, that was the goal, was to do all of these jobs. And I, I loved martial arts. I loved performing. You know, I enjoy acting. I enjoy... But the kind of the the place where you get to have more creative control and to have a bigger say in the storytelling is in the director's chair. So that was so, always the plan. Not I don't I want to be an actor and I'll be a stunt double first or I want to do something else and 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 I wanted to go that route um but it was closed so I did stunts. No, like it was I mean it wasn't it wasn't uh you know I want to be a director but I I guess I'll just do just do stunts while I'm waiting. I wanted stunts was a, a, a very passionate about and something I wanted to pursue but knowing that the the body can only take so much punishment and that when I do something I do it 110%. So, you know, when it came to stunts, I I I went for it. Uh but all the while, you you know, I never kind of wanted to pigeonhole myself as to doing one thing, just like while doing stunts and acting and and directing short films on the side, I was playing music and, you know, to developing other skills cuz I think life is meant to be lived in its fullest. So, I I'm not I don't want to as much as I can be focused on you know making a movie or being a stuntman i try also to expand that to other aspects of life and enjoyment so i'm i'm not trying to limit myself to just being a, at the time the best stuntman or you know the best actor i wanted to do it all and i get i guess maybe it's greedy but i i see it as kind of just trying to live my life to the the fullest and realize all the different potentials that i that i might have and just just test myself in different ways and stunts was the first part of that and then along the way there were other acting you know endeavors and then it was you know fight choreography and that leading to stunt coordinating all the while developing the filmmaking skills and and you know i would 
even while just doubling and being on set of The Winter Soldier, I was always, rather than finishing my stunt and be like, great, I did a good job. Let's go back and you know, focus on the stunt side. I would go and stand behind the monitors and watch the Russos and see what were they doing? How were they preparing the next shot? What was, what was their methodology? And so you're because, very much, I want to learn, and also you're signaling to them, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. And, and, and so it won't, it's not an accident that they show you a script at some point. Right. I mean, it, and it's funny because it, that wasn't, you know, I'm not purposefully going like, oh, in like three years, I can see these guys or five years giving me a script. I just, I was trying to be fully invested in the moment. And I see that these guys have a lot of filmmaking knowledge and they're very open and willing to talk about things. And so I would ask questions. I would be there. I'd be present, you know, with the filmmakers to try to learn as much as I could. And then through that process, with the responsibilities that they would hand off in the stunt world, you know, hey, we'd, we'd shoot these things called, you know, fight vises or pre-visualizations for action, where we take what's on the page and we choreograph the action and then shoot it with video cameras and then edit it together and present to the director. Sort I've of the next that. level up from storyboarding. Like, this is what it'll like when these guys actually punch each other. Exactly, it is. It's a kind of a living, breathing storyboard process. And I've done that for many talented directors through the years, including Chad, Dave Leach, you know, Francis Lawrence, the Russo brothers. Like, I've, I've had a very... Um, varied uh, career in that aspect because I've worked on a lot of different films for a lot of different filmmakers. But every time doing that process, I was directing a sequence. Right. So you're making a little movie within a movie. Exactly. And I wasn't just doing it to like, oh, well, you know, let's just do this and get it done. I was fully invested. How can I make this the best mini movie possible? And then I would show it to them. And then the great thing, it was I'd get feedback because it was related to the movie they were trying to make. It was part of this bigger process. They'd be like, ah, you know what would be better here, I think, is this close-up or, you know, a shot of this telling this story in a better way. And I would take that. I'd write, you know, I'd write it down. I would just absorb these notes. And so those, all those lessons and all that practice of directing these sequences, I think, you know, it was gathering experience for when I got the opportunity to do something like extraction. And, and you get hurtless. What's what you mentioned, uh, sort of the lifespan of a stuntman. How, how long... What's a reasonable amount of time you could you can do this kind of physical work? At what point do you have to sort of tap out? You know, it really depends. I mean, there's, I think the career spans are getting longer because of the advances in technology and safety. And but I also my first job in Los Angeles, I worked for a stunt coordinator who was on our set, still crashed a car, flipped over a car at 72 years old. <laughs> so, like, it really depends on the individual and the, you know, the circumstances and how well you take care of yourself, what stunts you do. Like, it's very, it's very different, but I would say, for me, you know, I, I didn't want to do, to beat my body up for the rest of my career uh, or to have to, you know, I yeah. enjoy, I still enjoy performing and I, hopefully I can perform and choose to do or not do stunts later into my career. Were, but, were you were you kicking and punching on extraction or are you on camera there? Uh, you know, you you might recognize me. I did come in for a little cameo there and play, gave myself a few lines and, uh, and that was actually Joe Russo's idea. And you've got a giant beard, right? So I can yes. see if I can go yep. back and look for you. Okay, it's the beard. Look, look, for the, look for the beard. Look for the guy and, in the beard. And yeah. you're, you're, you're in one piece. What's the worst injury you've, uh, you've endured mm. as a stunt guy? Worst injury. Well, I've been very fortunate in, throughout my career to not sustain, you know, any kind of one major injury. I think the worst would be the the number of concussions that I've uh, sustained th over the years. I double think digits. I'm up, yeah, I'm up in the double digits. So I, it was it actually it was kind of one of the factors there later on, just to be like, hey, I, I need to kind of slow this down a bit because you know I always 
was looking for the big stunt because I, I lo- again, I was inspired by Jackie Chan and, and his stunt performers in his movies, and I, I just wanted to do that. It was the thrill and the kind of the pride of having done something like that and survived. So I was put, and then even coordinating, I put myself in the big spot. So that adds up, and so I, I think that would be probably the, the worst thing that had been. Yeah, don't concuss yourself anymore. Um, I would, I will not leave this podcast on a dumb pun about <laughs> knocking yourself out. But I am delighted <laughs> that I got to talk to you. It's very fun. Uh, I look forward Thanks to meeting you. you in real life one day. Thank you, Sam. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for your time. That was super fun. Thanks again to Sam. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.